I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. As of now, I think I've got the crown. It's high noon for Wednesday, December 15th, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. Today is the 329th day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You bought in completely to the idea that anyone would go along with anything so long as that thing was branded well enough. Like a few years ago, I was at a meeting for a company I used to be involved in. And one of my partners at that company was wearing Yeezys and he put them up on the table. He was just kind of lounging and I was like, hey, man, did you rob a pay less shoe source? Like, what are those horrible looking shoes? And he was like, yeah, they're the new Yeezys, man. And I said, uh, oh, OK, but why are they so ugly? And he didn't really have an answer for that because to him, they weren't ugly. To him, they were very comfortable and very trendy and very hip. And this is what branding does to people. And by the way. Great guy. I'm not insulting him in any way. We have a difference of opinion about how good those shoes looked. They looked terrible. They looked like knockoff shoes that would be sold at a knockoff shoe store. But instead, they were like $1,200. And that was actually coming at the tail end of a fad where everyone, at least in Los Angeles and I assume other places, was very into wearing these ugly, really chunky sneakers that were all very, very expensive and made by big-time fashion brands, but they all looked horrible, no matter who was wearing them. There wasn't someone who could make those shoes look cool. And the thing is, when you're going for branding, right, the brand has to be associated with things that people aspire to and want. Like, for instance, you're watching football on a Sunday and in probably almost every commercial break, you will see an ad for one of the major auto manufacturers trying to sell a pickup truck based on what you can tow with it. Okay. And they are obviously marketing that to the men of America and maybe some very strapping lesbians that's possible as well but they're marketing to people that want to 
seem or look like they have a little bit of extra toughness. Like, oh, that guy drives a pickup truck, huh? I guess he must be some kind of hard worker. You understand? So the branding can be successful as long as the thing that they are attaching the brand to is something that people aspire to be. And also that that attachment, that connection seems legitimate and real. And that can actually continue indefinitely in a couple of ways. The first, if you're talking about like Michael Jordan or something, right? Michael Jordan has always been Michael Jordan and always will be Michael Jordan. And his brand has always been about uh, excellence and drive and the will to achieve and relentlessness. Or you can think of legacy brands like Rolex or Rolls Royce or Rolos, the candy. And I don't know if that fits my example, but I was on a. Yes, you got it. On the other hand, you can attempt to sustain a brand through cultural support, right? The media will help. You have a big PR campaign. You're always trying to message about how great your brand is. And you can look at, let's say, Cardi B, for instance. She was supposed to be a very powerful woman of color who was very smart and sophisticated and politically savvy and a very hard worker who just did what she had to do to reach the top, even though that included working as a stripper who would go home with her clients and then drug and rob them. So that was all okay because she was a a feminist icon. And the only way that anybody could believe something that is so obviously bizarro world opposite of true is through a mass propaganda campaign. And that's exactly what they had. And for that to work, people have to believe the disseminators of the propaganda. They have to tell themselves a story about how this ridiculous thing could be true. And then they have to assume that that narrative will be enforced upon them by society if they choose to speak out against it. They'll basically believe that it must be true because other people believe it as well, which is what you could see with the ugly sneaker craze. They were only very ugly, okay? There was nothing cute about them. It wasn't cute or fashionable to wear them. It was just ugly. And let's think about some more branding campaigns that only work with the propaganda, with the social enforcement, and with an elaborate narrative that makes it seem true. For instance, Joe Biden is a moderate who will unify the country, right? Black Lives Matter is all about racial justice and saving black lives. COVID is the deadliest pandemic ever. The vaccines are very safe and effective. January 6th was a very violent insurrection, and the violence was on par with 9-11 and the Civil War. 
None of those things make any sense whatsoever. And the reason I'm talking about this today is because, as I said at the very beginning, maybe I have the Quran. I don't know. I think my voice sounds okay. My throat's a little scratchy. I'm a little tired. I'm probably pausing more times than usual today. But I don't know if I have it or not. Yesterday, I was convinced that I had it because for the past few days, I have been pretty run down, like body fatigue, like in an extreme way, right? Not like I went to the gym and I'm sore, like actual fatigue, wild fluctuations in my body temperature. Maybe I had a fever. I would be freezing. I would put on more clothes or more blankets when I'm in bed. And then all of a sudden I would be sweating profusely and then I would be freezing again and then sweating again. And that, let me tell you guys, that is so much fun, especially when you're trying to sleep. And I had this uh, constant headache for like over two days, like just kind of sitting behind my eyes, real pain in the ass. All of it was very unpleasant. And so I get in touch with a friend of mine and I knew that he had some ivermectin left over. He had COVID a few months ago, a couple months ago. And I was like, Hey buddy, do you have any ivermectin? I think I've got the cron. And he sends me a text message from a mutual friend of ours. We were at a gathering on Friday night and apparently 12 people who were at that gathering have all since tested positive for COVID. And I got to assume it's the cron, right? the very transmissible variant. Now, I know that the person who sent that text and some of the other people are part of the medical experiment. And of course, I'm not. So maybe they're getting a worse version of it or maybe I don't have it at all. And so I went to get tested today just to find out because if you get a positive test, then you are eligible for certain treatments and No one likes to feel like crap for very long, and I certainly don't want to be caught unprepared to get those treatments if somehow my condition were to decline. So I ended up going to two different testing sites. At one of them, I got a PCR test that they stuck all the way into my head and twisted around for 10 seconds, which is entirely unnecessary, and I'll get the results of that in a day or two. That's what they say. The other one, they do two swabs, both of them very lightly. One of them you get back in like a week. The other one is the rapid antigen test. And that one came up negative. So apparently I have a cold or not. And I don't know. But I do know that the crazy thing about all of this is If they had not branded COVID-19 the way they have branded it, there is no way in the last few days I would have thought anything serious in the least was going on with my health. I would have just been like, ah, I guess I'm kind of catching a cold. Not really feeling very good, but uh, all right. I suppose I'll take some vitamins. I'll eat healthy. I'll get some extra sleep and then I'll go on with my life. Now, of course, now got to get tested. You got to maybe get some serious treatment. You got to quarantine yourself. 
so you don't run the risk of spreading your very mild illness to someone else, even though you're probably already past the point of being contagious. That's all branding. They have set it into all of our minds that a condition we used to see as entirely normal and completely manageable is now something we have to make a big deal out of and we have to retreat from society and we have to worry all the time. It's very strange. They successfully rebranded any sign of illness as a potential sign of a life-threatening disease. And I'm not trying to say that no one's life could ever be threatened from it. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I am a pretty healthy person in my early 40s. These things do not generally affect people like me. Although now I've had to go through this process just in case. Because I know the story, the public story. I have in some way accepted the branding. And, you know, I might find out from one of the two other PCR tests that one of them comes out positive. And then at that point, uh, what do I say? I had it. I didn't have it. Who knows? Maybe tomorrow by this time, I will not even be able to come on this show and speak. I doubt that, but it's possible, I guess. But the point is, a lot of branding is just a complete and total sham, right? It's to make you think something that you would not think just based on the reality of the thing. And one of the reasons that branding falls apart is because people start realizing it. And once everyone realizes it, well, then all of that kind of goes away. And that's what we have right now with the mainstream media in so many different situations. And part of that branding falling apart on so many levels for so many different things right now is the work that people are doing to dispel all those false narratives. And I know I said yesterday I was going to talk a little bit more about the Peter McCullough appearance on Joe Rogan. So I want to do that today because what that was for the most part was two hours and 45 minutes of Peter McCullough dismantling a lot of the branding around the coronavirus narrative and the vaccine narrative. And one of the really interesting things, especially in the first hour or so of their podcast episode, was that Rogan kept asking, like, why is this happening? Why did we get this other story? What is the motivation behind all of this? And maybe he was just being rhetorical or maybe he really doesn't understand. I am not sure where Joe Rogan's head is actually at on so many of these things. Because if you are systematically told thousands of absolutely provably false claims by the people in power, it is not a stretch to think that there's a plan, that they are trying to make you think the wrong thing so that they can gain different advantages. And after a little bit, McCullough finally started to go into some of that stuff. And that's what I want to play for you right now. So in your opinion, 
if your protocol had been established and distributed worldwide, if people had recognized that this is a way to deal with early treatment, you think that the overall number of COVID deaths would have been significantly reduced? I testified in the U.S. Senate November 19, 2020. I told Americans under oath that 50% of the lives at that time could have been saved. We were at about 250,000 deaths based on what I knew. I then testified on March 10th, 2021 in the Texas Senate, sworn testimony. I upped that to 85% of the deaths could have been avoided. We know that because we carried out studies. We did one with Proctor here in, in Dallas-Fort Worth where we demonstrated that even the early primordial protocols before the monoclonal antibodies, when we use drugs in combination, were associated with 85% reductions in hospitalizations and deaths compared to Fair comparator groups. In, for death, we use the Tri-County Area and DFW averages age-adjusted. And for hospitalization, we use the Cleveland Clinic calculator, which is a very precise estimate of the risk of hospitalization. Then simultaneously, Derwand and Zelenko showed that from our own New York data, and then Didier Rial showed it from Marseille, France. So we have three different areas showing early multidrug therapy as an outpatient works substantially, and we've had a giant loss of life a giant number, millions and millions of unnecessary hospitalizations. Uh, and it seemed to me, and I, listen, I've told Tucker Carlson and many others, it seems to me early on there was an, an intentional, very comprehensive suppression of early treatment in order to promote fear, suffering, isolation, hospitalization, and death. And it seemed to be completely organized and intentional in order to create acceptance for and then promote mass vaccination. So you believe this is a premeditated thing that they were doing. So they realized that in order to get people enthusiastic about taking this vaccine, the best way to do that was to not have a protocol for treatment. It's not just my idea. Now it's completely laid out by the book by Dr. Pam Popper, the book recently published by Peter Bregan, uh, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey, I wrote one of the uh, introductions, Dr. Leafleet and Dr. Vladimir Lysenko wrote the other introductions. These books are basically nonfiction. They have a thousand citations in the Bregan book showing how it was coordinated and planned. Now Bobby Kennedy has his book out, The Real Anthony Fauci. I'm the most uh, uh, mentioned physician in that book. I can tell you that if you want to find the evidence that Moderna was working on the vaccine, before the virus ever emanated out of the lab. If you wanted to find the, the collusions and the operations between the Gates Foundation and Gavi and CEPI and Pfizer and Moderna and the vaccine manufacturers and the Wuhan lab and the National Institutes of Health and Ralph Barrick and University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and how all this was organized. If you want to see the Johns Hopkins planning seminar called the SPARS pandemic in 2017, where they had a symposium. People showed up. They wrote up their symposium findings. They published this. It says it's going to be a coronavirus. It's going to be related to MERS and SARS. It's going to come over here to the United States. It's going to shut down cities and frighten people. There's going to be confusion regarding a drug, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. And we're going to utilize all that in order to railroad the population into mass vaccination. It's laid out in the Johns Hopkins SPARS pandemic training seminar. The only thing that got wrong was the year. They said it was going to be 2025. Instead, it landed a few years early. Now, if you've been listening to this show, 
for the last year or year and a half, you would know virtually all of what he has just said. But the reason I'm playing this is not to say, oh, yeah, hey, I was right. Check it out. This doctor says it, too. That's not what I'm playing this for. I'm playing this so that you can understand this is what millions of people are hearing right now. Joe Rogan, as I've talked about many times, has a gigantic audience. And whether or not I think he's always on the right track, and I certainly don't think he is about many things, most particularly the election fraud, but he still has a massive, massive audience that trusts him and trusts what they hear on his show. For them to be finally hearing things like this from a renowned expert, I think that actually matters in terms of destroying the narrative. And I know friends of mine who listen to Rogan quite a lot get annoyed that I don't give this kind of stuff more credit. And it's not that I don't give it credit. I actually completely understand the value in what McCullough is doing right here and what Rogan is doing by having him on and allowing him the space to answer these questions this way. What I get annoyed at is that it's December of 2021 where this is happening and not June of 2020 because the damage that's been caused by delaying these conversations for a year and a half is of course enormous and then just consider the damage caused by not having anyone on to explain election fraud we have had an illegitimate president sitting or pretending to sit in office for nearly 11 months now. And every single policy enacted by the illegitimate administration has done nothing but tear down this society and weaken America in the world and also destroy the lives of countless American citizens. But let's hear some more. Um, Taking away basic freedoms and then offering up one individual single solution to this and this is what has sort of fueled this what's very obvious to people that there's a lot of people that are not acting well they're not acting normal um they are attacking people that seem to be ideologically opposed to whatever is going on and they're they're marching in lockstep with the authoritarians and they're they're doing it like you would like like stockholm syndrome or something it's it's very strange do you think this is an organized thing? Do you think this is just what happens when you have have a massive group of people that are dealing with an incredibly uh, tense and anxiety-ridden event like a pandemic, where no one knows what the solution is, and a lot of people, a lot of people are terrified of just everyday life, and then all of a sudden something like this comes along, and those are the people that are more easily manipulated, and they fall in line together because there's sort of a tribal aspect this type of thinking and behavior and you find support from other people that are equally afraid no the mass psychosis clearly is focused on pillar number four that was the last pillar that i presented to the americans uh in november of, of 2020 in the u.s senate this is before the vaccines came out and that is vaccination listen vaccination should play a role i've taken all the vaccines uh, my kids have taken all the vaccines uh i went to india i took extra vaccines so there's you don't have any problem with vaccines uh what had happened is, I, I want to say by April of 2020, 
it was clear that the vaccine development program was far more advanced than we ever could have imagined. How could we have actually figured out the neutralizing antibodies and have the sequence to the spike protein and have all that ready to go? Have already figured out how to load it into messenger or adenoviral DNA. How do we actually get that to run? Remember, there are 24 of these platforms. They had all previously failed except for Patirisan. A lot of people don't know this. There is a messenger RNA product. I can use that as a cardiologist called Patirisan. It's a small interfering messenger RNA that we use to treat amyloidosis. But the previous trials of gene transfer technology, which is what these are, were normally to replace a missing protein. So, for instance, I'm a cardiologist. I treat a condition called Fabry's disease. It affects the heart. There was a messenger RNA program to basically replace the missing enzyme, alpha-galactosidase. But in this case, to take these platforms and say, you know what, these are ready to go. We're just going to insert the code for the spike protein, which is now what we've learned is the lethal part of COVID-19. The ball of the virus, the nucleocapsid, that beach ball, is relatively harmless. What causes all the damage is the spine or the spicule on the surface. Everyone knows a cartoon of the virus. That's called the spike protein. 1,200 amino acids, about a dozen glycosylation sites. It has some homology, by the way, to HIV. Uh, and so a lot of people don't know this, but the original, one of the original antigenic vaccines that was tested in Australia exposed that HIV epitope. It turned everybody in the trial HIV positive who took a COVID-19 vaccine in Australia. These young people were outraged. And so this was on the internet. It was quickly suppressed. But if anybody wants to type this in right now, you can actually learn that one of the very first vaccines tried in Australia actually turned everybody HIV positive. They didn't have HIV, but there was a molecular trickery that was going on. Having said this, now when we look back, when we look at the books, Popper, um, Bregan, uh, Robert F. Kennedy, and now uh, Atlas, it's pretty clear that this was planned. And it was planned, and the mass the elements of the mass psychosis are clearly planned. In fact, the elements of the mass psychosis are in the Johns Hopkins planning document. They had that up on their website since 2017. Once the pandemic hit in March of 2020, in March of 2020 they actually published it in the peer-reviewed literature. You can see how it was all done. That's how the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health had the death count up on CNN and MSNBC and Fox as a scoreboard. Do you remember the scoreboard mm. was number of cases and deaths? How do they get that, Joe? Come on, I fill out death certificates every day. Do you know the average death certificate comes to me six weeks after the death? How are they getting these deaths, instantaneous numbers, picking up every day? It was extraordinary what Americans saw. So, so how were they getting that? To this day, we don't know. To this day, we don't know. All we know on the CDC website is the CDC website says that about 90% of the deaths that have occurred with COVID-19 have been associated with significant comorbidities, meaning other major problems that were in the proximal pathway to death. The Italians have just recoded all of their deaths. They say 97% of the Italian deaths, meaning someone had heart failure, advanced lung disease, kidney disease, on dialysis, advanced cancer. A good example was Colin Powell. Colin Powell just died recently. He was in his 80s. He was fully vaccinated, and he died of multiple myeloma, but he was also COVID positive. And so the question is, how much of the COVID did he die of and how much of the multiple myeloma? Larry King died the same way. We can pick, doesn't, we'd have to go far to find well-known personalities where this happened. So once again, he lays it all out very clearly. 
And these are things that I have talked about for a very long time. But these are all things that most people who are addicted to the central narrative don't know at all. They have heard some of these things. They have decided for themselves that all of these things must be lies because there's no way that people like them could have been lied to about anything this important by people like them, right? They actually identify themselves with people who are uh, educated and responsible and knowledgeable and informed. And so they see someone like Dr. Fauci or Sanjay Gupta or the anchors on the cable news that they listen to, or they read the websites that they think other smart people read, and they assume that all of these things that they heard about on the internet must just all be lies. And of course, there's that segment of the public who will listen to this podcast and turn it off in the middle because they are so invested in the central narrative being true that something like this that is tearing down every little bit of the central narrative, it must be false. They have to assume that this guy is crazy. And then they'll think, yeah, well, you know, I kind of always knew Rogan had a bunch of uh, crackpots on there anyway. He has like uh, Alex Jones and, and whoever. They won't pay attention to the fact that it's been nearly two years and he's just now starting to have people on who will say things like this. And again, still hasn't had anybody on to explain election fraud to him. But for the people who actually sit there and listen to this, well, now they have a reason to take all of this stuff seriously. And this isn't the only place the COVID narrative is falling apart. It's funny, just uh, this afternoon, uh, Twitter has announced new rules about what they're allowed to censor when it comes to false and misleading COVID information, okay? So they they released a new document and they have already updated it. Right now, I'm going to go through the first version and then I'll tell you what they updated. So this is section three of this document. They write, False or misleading information regarding the safety or science behind approved or authorized COVID-19 vaccines, such as the vaccines will cause you to be sick, spread the virus, or would be more harmful than getting COVID-19. Again, you're not allowed to talk about that on Twitter, despite it being true. Tweets that incite fear or misrepresent the ingredients or contents of COVID-19 vaccines. Now, there is no way for Twitter to even discern whether or not what people are saying is in the vaccine is actually in the vaccine because Twitter doesn't have the vaccine ingredients either. Tweets that mischaracterize the nature and science behind mRNA vaccines and how they work. Oh, yeah, there is nothing. There is no reason to allow an open conversation about this brand new technology that is only available under an emergency use authorization. Tweets that claim vaccines alter genetic code. Okay. Tweets that misrepresent or misuse official reporting tools and statistics. Got that? So you are not allowed to print official statistics unless those statistics are being used 
to hold up the central narrative. And then you can use them all you want. But if you're using those statistics to show what's wrong with the central narrative, then Twitter has a right to censor you. And then the final one, and this is the one they end up updating, false or misleading claims that people who have received the vaccine can spread or shed the virus or symptoms or immunity to unvaccinated people. Now, the way they have printed that in this version is absolute indisputable fact. Okay, people who have the received the vaccine can spread or shed the virus. Everybody knows that Nazi doctor Anthony Fauci even says that everybody knows that the vaccinated can spread the virus. Everybody knows that. So they change it to this false or misleading claims that people who have received the vaccine can spread or shed the vaccine or symptoms or immunity to unvaccinated people. And so maybe, maybe they just typed the other version incorrectly and they meant to say the vaccine the whole time. But it is interesting that they are going after this particular claim because there is no reason to believe that this claim isn't true as well. In Pfizer's own documents, which have been released, they advise against sexual contact for weeks after receiving the vaccine. Why is that? There have been numerous anecdotal reports from all over the place. In fact, I think that there was an entire website made where women could share their experiences having their menstruation changed by getting the vaccine or by being in an office or around people who had received the vaccine. This isn't some conspiracy theory. People have had real experiences with this. Now we're just not allowed to say it. If you say it, if you talk about it, then Twitter can censor you. And it's interesting that they're making this move right now as they get into the phase of trying to convince everyone to get an extra shot or a couple extra shots. They're trying to put it in children and in a couple of months, very small children. And they're pushing for consent of vaccine passports, lockdowns, and more restrictions on the unvaccinated. And it's important to remember that on some level, they do require societal consent. All right. When society stops consenting, their plans all fail, which is why people like me have been trying to say for so very long that the move, what we need to do is inform ourselves and stop complying. Because when we stop complying, all of this has to end. They need enough of society to believe that they are still doing the right thing. And they need enough of the society to go along with it. Even if they don't agree, even if they don't want to do it, they still need people's compliance. Because without that compliance, everybody begins realizing that these people don't actually have the power they claim to have. Their power is, in fact, totally illegitimate and they can't enforce these things. They need the people to enforce it upon one another. Now, Steve Kirsch has an interesting article posted in his Substack from last night where he argues that according to the latest VAERS estimate, 388,000 Americans have been killed by the COVID vaccines. So that is an enormous number 
Let's have a look. Let's hear his argument. My estimate of the VAERS underreporting factor, URF, got it? Underreporting factor at 41 was based on anaphylaxis rates reported in the Blumenthal paper published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. That's JAMA. I have argued that the anaphylaxis rate is an appropriate number to use to underestimate deaths because I believe that deaths would be less reported than anaphylaxis to VARES for two reasons. One, it usually lacks the time proximity to vaccination. And two, the person seeing the death may not know the vaccination status of the victim and may not technically be required to report the death. Some people have quibbled with that assumption, including my friend, Professor John Ioannidis. And John Ioannidis is a Stanford epidemiologist, world renowned, who argued that there is no evidence that that is true and it could be the other way around. It's a fair point, And I told John, it's only an estimate and I'm happy to modify it when we have more data. That day has arrived, courtesy of Wayne at VAERS Analysis. Wayne did a URF computation using death data in CMS. This overcomes any objections about the validity of using anaphylaxis rates as a proxy for death rates. The VAERS URF he computed was 44.64. This seems reasonable to me. It's really not far from the 41 I calculated. Also, Wayne subsequently looked at the numbers for nine states. The average value was 40, not far from the 41 I calculated from anaphylaxis. I had two team members, Albert Benavides and Jessica Rose, double check his numbers. No mistake. Now let's see what that means. As of December 14th, 2021, there are 9,136 deaths reported into VAERS for domestic deaths. If you are using open VAERS, flip the switch at the top to see the U.S. only deaths. If we subtract out more than twice the total number of deaths reported in any previous year, to be super conservative about estimating background deaths, and he lists the calculation, that multiplies the deaths reported by the underreporting factor, he arrives at a number, and that number is 387,922 deaths. So our best new estimate of the number of excess deaths caused by the vaccine is around 388,000. Because there isn't a plausible mechanism of excess death other than the vaccine, certainly our always vigilant CDC has never suggested an alternate cause, the process of elimination leads us to conclude the obvious, that these excess deaths were in fact caused by the vaccine. This should really be a surprise to anyone paying attention to the clinical trials. For example, in the Pfizer trial, you were much more likely to die if you got the vaccine than if you got the placebo. They simply forgot to mention that in the abstract of the paper, and they were incapable of accurately counting the number of deaths in each group as well. In short, the vaccine is a killing machine. As the clinical trial showed, it was more likely to kill you than to save you. America still refuses to acknowledge that fact. Today, our best estimate of vaccine fatalities using the VAERS data is that the U.S. government is responsible for killing 388,000 formerly healthy Americans for no reason or societal benefit under the guise of saving them. And we're not done yet. Those kids with myocarditis, half of them could die in five years. We just don't know. Prion diseases, we don't know. Autoimmune diseases, we don't know. Reproductive issues, unknown. Original antigenic sin, possibly. You get the idea. 
By contrast, the Vietnam War was a long, deadly struggle that took place from 1954 to 1975 between North Vietnam and South Vietnam. The U.S. National Archives show that 58,220 U.S. soldiers perished over the 21 years. Here, we've killed more than six times as many people in a fraction of the time, just 11 months. No one in mainstream media will dare talk about this. They won't even ask the question, not a single reporter. Nobody in Congress will discuss it either. I tried to bring this information to the attention of congressional staff, but they have ignored my requests. Of course, the FDA and CDC have no comment other than they disagree with me. They won't say why. Wow. We have a discrepancy of 388,000 Americans dead, and they won't even say why I got it wrong. I'm guessing that they can't say why because I used their numbers. They maintain VAERS and CMS and their methodology, and there were no math errors. So they have to go with the hand-waving argument that we disagree since they can't go with facts, evidence, data, or methodology errors. As for all the bogus arguments about VAERS and causality that are used by the so-called fact-checkers to attack my work, I thoroughly dismantled those in my 63-page article. That is why none of the people at the FDA or CDC are willing to talk on the record to me, because I know how to dismantle their bogus excuses for looking the other way. They won't talk to any of my associates either. They just don't want to hear it. Now, that's an absolutely enormous number, but there's no obvious reason to think that it can't be true, right? We know that no matter what, VAERS is undercounted. There are studies that say VAERS is sometimes undercounted by a factor of 100. And then there are others that say it's five or 10 times. But whatever it is, we're talking about on the low end, 50,000 deaths or the 10,000 that they list, the 9,000, whatever it is, 9,000 deaths due to a vaccine that we are told is very safe and very effective is insane. That is not safe. And we know the vaccine's not effective. It's made even worse by the fact that this vaccine is meant to prevent us from getting a disease that almost definitely cannot kill us unless we fit a certain profile. And it becomes even worse than that when we know that the vaccine doesn't do anything. It doesn't prevent you from getting the disease, from spreading it, from becoming seriously ill or from dying. So these are at minimum 9,000 plus excess deaths that simply did not need to happen. And since the mainstream media spent all last year comparing COVID deaths to the number of 9-11s or the number of people that died in World War II or the number of people that fill up a college football stadium, is it really acceptable that we've caused at minimum three 9-11s worth of death for this vaccine rollout? Knowing what we know about the vaccine and about the disease, this is madness. And that is not even approaching anything close to the numbers that Kirsch is talking about. And speaking of completely unnecessary deaths, this is actually reported by the New York Times, and it's an article about the potential risks of uh, molnupiravir, which is the Merck drug that is supposed to act something like ivermectin and be a therapeutic for people who get COVID. Now, it wouldn't be all that surprising knowing about the vaccine push for the mainstream media to attempt to take down vaccine alternatives. So let's just see. This is from uh, Monday, actually. Merck's COVID pill might pose risks for pregnant women. 
Some laboratory studies suggest that molnupiravir can insert errors in DNA, which could in theory harm a developing fetus, sperm cells, or children. And that's kind of interesting because we were just told by the Twitter censors that any talk of changes in DNA was out of bounds. This is Benjamin Mueller in the New York Times. A new COVID-19 pill from Merck has raised hopes that it could transform the landscape of treatment options for Americans at high risk of severe disease at a time when the Omicron variant of the coronavirus is driving a surge of cases in highly vaccinated European countries. Highly vaccinated European countries. Oh, I got it. I got it. I got it. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. But two weeks after a Food and Drug Administration expert committee narrowly voted to recommend authorizing the drug known as molnupiravir, the FDA is still weighing Merck's application. Among the biggest questions facing regulators is whether the drug, in the course of wreaking havoc on the virus's genes, also has the potential to cause mutations in human DNA. Scientists are especially worried about pregnant women, they said, because the drug could affect a fetus's dividing cells, theoretically causing birth defects. Members of the FDA expert committee expressed those same concerns during a public meeting on November 30th. Do we want to reduce the risk for the mother by 30% while exposing the embryo and the fetus to a much higher risk of harm by this drug? Dr. James Hildreth, the president of Mahari Medical College in Tennessee, said at the meeting, my answer is no, and there is no circumstance in which I would advise a pregnant woman to take this drug. The FDA advisors also noted that the risks could extend to other patients, including men wanting to become fathers, though those risks remain poorly understood and Merck said its own studies had turned up no evidence that the drug causes DNA mutations. And so I guess we should just trust them. Crucially, molnupiravir is expected to work against Omicron, which, by the way, should also be a good indication that ivermectin works against Omicron and everything else. But it has drawn concern from some scientists and regulators in Europe for being less effective than certain other treatments. It has been shown to reduce the risk of hospitalization and death by 30% if given within five days of symptoms emerging. Here's what scientists know about how the drug works and its potential risks. How does molnupiravir work? When the drug is processed in the body, it creates compounds that closely resemble one of the building blocks of RNA, the genetic material inside the coronavirus. That causes problems for the coronavirus as it makes copies of itself. Once the virus enters a cell and starts replicating, the drug compound can slip into the virus's RNA and insert enough errors that the virus cannot survive. What molnupiravir does is it disguises itself. Elizabeth Campbell, an expert in structural biology at the Rockefeller University, who studies coronavirus antivirals, said in an interview, it can propagate errors that are going to be sprinkled all over the genome. Making more and more mistakes, the virus eventually grinds to a stop, Dr. Campbell said. That helps the body fight off the infection and potentially saves the patient's life. The problem is that the same compound that interferes in the replication of the virus's genetic material can also be transformed into one that resembles a building block of DNA. Some scientists are concerned that could cause errors in a patient's own DNA or in that of a developing fetus. If cells are replicating, it means they're uptaking a version of one of the DNA building blocks derived from molnupiravir and incorporating it, Dr. Campbell said. And it's good to know that the Rockefeller University is being very responsible when it comes to things that could help depopulate the earth. How serious a problem is that? <laughs> A team of researchers at the University of North Carolina studied the use of molnupiravir in isolated hamster cells over 32 days and found that the drug did induce mutations in DNA. Those mutations could, quote, 
contribute to the development of cancer or cause birth defects either in a developing fetus or through incorporation into sperm precursor cells, the authors of that study wrote. The drug targets only dividing cells which are relatively sparse in an adult. That poses a narrower risk than other so-called mutagens like radiation, which can damage DNA in all types of cells. Still, Ronald Swanstrom, an HIV researcher at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, who helped lead the hamster cell study, said that adults had enough dividing cells in bones, for example, and in the lining of the gut to cause concern. He also noted that men were constantly making dividing sperm cells that could carry potential mutations. I don't think anybody knows what this dose means in terms of human outcomes, Dr. Swanstrom said. I hope it's trivial, but I don't think anybody knows. In a letter objecting to Dr. Swanstrom's conclusions, Merck scientists said that hamster cells were exposed to the drug for considerably longer than COVID patients would be. The company said that it tested the drug in rodents and found no signs of DNA mutations, also known as mutagenicity. We see this molecule as having a very low risk for mutagenicity. Dr. Roy Baines, Merck's chief medical officer, said in an interview, this drug is used for five days and the goal is to eradicate the virus quickly. And this is not a long term treatment. Brianne Barker, a biologist at Drew University, said that Merck should publish its rodent data, but that the short course of treatment lowered the risks. She said that the isolated hamster cells were also, quote, a bit different from cells you'd actually find in an organism, end quote, making it difficult to know how serious the dangers would be in people. What are the risks during pregnancy? Cells in a fetus are dividing all the time, heightening the risk of mutations. As a result, Merck excluded pregnant and breastfeeding women, as well as women likely to become pregnant from its clinical trial. Human development in utero is an absolutely astounding sequence of events, said Dr. John Mellors, an infectious disease specialist at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. You start tinkering with that in any way and you can end up with a disaster. Dr. Mellers noted that Merck had reported that high doses of the drug in pregnant rats could cause developmental abnormalities or the death of a fetus. In Britain, health authorities have said that Merck's pill should not be given to pregnant or breastfeeding women. Women who could become pregnant, they advise, should use contraception while taking the drug and for four days after. If I was pregnant, I wouldn't take this, Dr. Campbell said. I probably would go so far as to say I wouldn't give it to a child, a teenager, anyone whose cells are still dividing and differentiating at higher rates. And that, again, is the woman from Rockefeller University. Scientists said that older antiviral pills offered lessons for safely prescribing molnupiravir. Before powerful hepatitis C drugs arrived in recent years, doctors frequently used a pill known as ribavirin as part of a combination therapy to treat hepatitis C patients. And I'm going to skip down toward the end, the final segment, what comes next? Scientists have urged Merck to publish the full findings of its rodent studies examining the risk of DNA mutations. And it's so good that scientists are urging the drug company to publish all the data from their studies on the pill that might eliminate the need for vaccines. I wonder why they're not urging the companies to provide all the data for their studies about the vaccines. And in fact, they're allowing or trying to allow Pfizer not to share its data for the next 75 years. So that's probably not an issue at all, right? Several experts also urge that researchers be allowed to study the long-term health outcomes of people who receive molnupiravir. The data could indicate whether people who take the drug develop cancer or have children with birth defects at higher rates than would be expected. And again, consider what they're doing here, right? They're demanding a very high standard 
on molnupiravir, which is fine. Everything should have a very high standard. They want Merck to share all the data and they want to know about long-term consequences. Both of those things, when it comes to the vaccine, are not allowed to be seen by anyone for any reason. Merck executives told the FDA advisory committee that the company would enact a surveillance program to monitor women who take molnupiravir during pregnancy. Even if the drug is not formally authorized for this group, women may take the drug before they know they are pregnant. Scientists said that while vaccination is the safest, most effective way of reducing COVID risks, antiviral pills will remain an important tool for addressing later stages of the pandemic. That isn't still happening already. This stuff is unbelievable. And the New York Times reporting obviously is so, so bad. The entire population will never be completely vaccinated. Immune responses will fade with time and people will get infected, if not here, then in other countries, said Matthias Gotte, a professor at the University of Alberta in Canada who has studied molnupiravir. The stakes are high for future epidemics, too. Molnupiravir has a potential to work against a number of other viruses like SARS and influenza. Wait, isn't coronavirus a SARS virus? But scientists said that there are some signs the drug would need to be used at higher doses against other viruses, making it all the more urgent to understand the risks. You got that? So because scientists have said that this drug might need to be used at higher doses to combat other viruses that we don't know about yet, but will surely come into being. We need to assume that this drug is being used at higher doses and then bias our conclusions toward the worst possible consequences. We could use this against the next epidemic on day two, Dr. Swanstrom said. We should at least put ourselves in a position to find out what it means to use this drug long term. And do you understand? That's what the very, very scientific, very responsible, very expert class believes about this drug, this treatment drug. We already know the safety profile of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. We know the safety profiles of the steroids and antibiotics that certain protocols pair with those drugs. We know the long-term benefits and side effects. But what we need to do is get a newly patented drug out there and have people just try it, and then we'll just see how it goes. But in the meantime, you shouldn't think that this drug is good enough to justify any slowdown when it comes to vaccine mandates or booster mandates or vaccine passports or firing people from their jobs. Now, there are more problems for the narrative today, and this is from National Pulse. COVID most likely escaped Wuhan lab, possibly genetically engineered, British MPs told. That's members of parliament. And there was a big piece on this today in the Telegraph UK. Members of the British Parliament were informed that the most likely origin of COVID-19 was a leak from the Wuhan lab and that the virus may in fact be genetically engineered. The news came during a briefing for the Science and Technology Select Committee. Dr. Alina Chan, a specialist in gene therapy and cell engineering from MIT and Harvard, said... We have heard from many top virologists that a genetically engineered origin is reasonable, and that includes virologists who made modifications to the first SARS virus. Chan added, we know this virus has a unique feature called the furin cleavage site, and without this feature, there is no way this would be causing this pandemic. 
She referenced the research collaboration between the Wuhan Institute of Virology and American nonprofit EcoHealth Alliance, which received millions from Anthony Fauci's National Institutes of Health Agency. A proposal was leaked showing that EcoHealth and the Wuhan Institute of Virology were developing a pipeline for inserting novel furin cleavage sites. So you find these scientists who said in early 2018, I'm going to put horns on horses. And at the end of 2019, a unicorn turns up in Wuhan City, outlined Dr. Chan. Dr. Chan's co-author, Viscant Ridley, stressed that uncovering COVID-19's true origins was imperative to, quote, deter bad actors who are watching this episode and thinking that unleashing a pandemic is something they could get away with, end quote, during the session. And yeah, there's no reason to believe that not with the world's media corporations and public health community and everyone else covering up the origin and making sure no one ever asks questions about it. We know that experiments were being done at biosecurity level two, similar to a dentist's office, that resulted in 10,000 times increases in infectivity of viruses and three or four times their lethality. The important thing is to stop doing these experiments that are risky, he added. The officials were also briefed on one of the strongest and widely circulated pieces of disinformation about the origins of COVID-19, a 2020 statement in the Lancet Medical Journal. The article prematurely concluded that the virus developed naturally and was leveraged by scientists and the mainstream media to silence discussion over the possibility of COVID-19 leaking from a lab. Also controversial, the letter, which was spearheaded by EcoHealth's DASHAC, failed to mention any of the researchers' conflicts of interest with the Wuhan lab and the Chinese Communist Party. MP Aaron Bell slammed the Lancet for correcting this mistake, too little, too late, in a recent memorandum. But the lab origin is probably still a conspiracy theory, and that's why they briefed British members of parliament on that, that now the lab theory is the most likely and truthfully has always been the most likely, even when it was a conspiracy theory. I wonder what it would mean for the lab theory to just have been the most likely and obvious answer the entire time. Could it have meant that someone would actually know the structure of the virus and we might be able to combat the virus in certain other ways? No, that's crazy. What we should do is just rely on a computer model of the virus so we can understand it in a more theoretical sense and then design vaccines that aren't vaccines on the basis of the theoretical model of the virus. Good job, science. You guys are killing it. And by it, I obviously mean millions and millions of people. Now, I don't spend a whole lot of time on the January 6th committee because it is mostly a waste of time, to be honest. I mean, it is a complete and total show trial. There is nothing legitimate about the committee or anything they're doing. I doubt that anyone will enforce in a legal sense any of the stuff that they're trying to have enforced. They just want to keep January 6th at the front of everybody's minds as we go into the year anniversary of the very violent insurrection. They have all sorts of celebrations and anniversary parties planned around it. They will probably have very somber ceremonies and a bunch of bullshit where the news constantly plays the highlight reels of the very violent insurrection. And they try to convince everybody that what happened that day was really thousands of Trump supporters attacking the Capitol and trying to overturn the election. None of that is true, but it doesn't matter to these people. 
This is from the Federalist today. Sean Davis. During January 6th hearing, Schiff doctored text messages between Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan. Oops, he did it again. After leaking fake Donald Trump Jr. emails, fabricating the transcript of a 2019 phone call between former President Donald Trump and Ukraine's president, and lying about his interactions with the so-called whistleblower behind House Democrats' first impeachment of Trump, Representative Adam Schiff, Democrat communist from California, is now running the same con against a fellow lawmaker. During a hearing Monday night on the riot at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, Adam Schiff claimed to have proof that a member of Congress texted former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to instruct former Vice President Mike Pence to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. Not only did Schiff misrepresent the substance of the text message and its source, he even doctored original text messages, which were obtained and reviewed by the Federalist in their entirety. And the messages are linked within the article. I want to display just a few of the messages he received from people in Congress, Schiff said, referring to Meadows. The committee is not naming these lawmakers at this time as our investigation is ongoing. If we could cue the first graphic. The following graphic purportedly of the text message between a member of Congress and Meadows then appeared on screen at Schiff's direction. This one reads on January 6, 2021, Vice President Mike Pence, as president of the Senate, should call out all electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional as no electoral votes at all. Schiff continued. You can see why this is so critical to ask Mr. Meadows about about a lawmaker suggesting that the former vice president simply throw out votes that he unilaterally deems unconstitutional in order to overturn a presidential election and subvert the will of the American people. And of course, that is Adam Schiff saying all of that nonsense. Not only did Schiff lie about the substance of the text message and its source, he even doctored the message and graphic that he displayed on screen during his statement. The full text message, which was forwarded to Meadows from Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio on the evening of Monday, January 5th, was significantly longer than what Schiff read and put on screen. But Schiff erased significant portions of the text and added punctuation where there was none to give the impression that Jordan himself was tersely directing Meadows to give orders to Pence on how to handle the electoral vote certification. The original text was written by Washington attorney and former Department of Defense Inspector General Joseph Schmitz and included an attachment of a four page draft word document drafted by Schmitz that detailed Schmitz's legal reasoning for suggesting that Pence had the constitutional authority to object to the certification of electoral votes submitted by a handful of states. The piece that Schmitz had sent to Jordan was published at the website every legal dot vote the next day, and even included the same, quote, discussion draft heading and timestamp on the document that Schmitz sent to Jordan. Good luck tomorrow, Schmitz texted Jordan on the evening of January 5th, including the Word document as an attachment. Schmitz then texted to Jordan a three-paragraph summary of his Word document, which Schiff sliced and diced and then attributed to Jordan. On January 6, 2021, Vice President Mike Pence, as president of the Senate, should call out all the electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional as no electoral votes at all, in accordance with guidance from founding father Alexander Hamilton and judicial precedents, Schmitz texted. In his graphic, Schiff erased the final clause and the M dash preceding it and added a period to the first clause without disclosing that he or his staff had chopped up the text and created a fake graphic misrepresenting the actual contents 
of the text message. And if you recall, actually, in the second fake impeachment of Donald Trump, they took a tweet from someone who attended the protest, the rally on January 6th, and they literally respelled the tweet. The woman said something about Calvary, a reference to the Bible, and they changed it to cavalry as if they were bringing in all of the reserve soldiers to attack the Capitol. They just straight up changed her tweet and still posted it as factual evidence in a fake impeachment trial. These people are insane. They have no scruples and no standards whatsoever. Schmitz continued, no legislative act, wrote Alexander Hamilton in Federalist number 78, contrary to the Constitution, can be valid. No legislative act, contrary to the Constitution, can be valid. Got that? The court in Hubbard versus Lowe reinforced this truth, that an unconstitutional statute is not a law at all and is a proposition no longer open to discussion. Following this rationale, an unconstitutionally appointed elector, like an unconstitutionally enacted statute, is no elector at all, Schmitz wrote. In his statement and on-screen graphic, Schiff erased the final two paragraphs and the final clause of the first paragraph of the text message before inserting punctuation that was never there, all without disclosing what he was doing. The graphic displayed by Schiff, which was doctored to look like an exact screenshot, was similarly doctored as it contains content that was never in the original message and eliminated content that was. Is anyone surprised that Adam Schiff is again rifling through private text messages and cherry-picking information to fit his partisan narrative and so misinformation? Asked Jordan spokesman Russell Dye. And by the way, this is a pretty long article here, so if you want to read the rest of it, it is up in the information stream, t.me slash I'm your moderator, or obviously just go on the Federalist, Sean Davis, you'll find it. And let me just say, all right, I know how frustrating this stuff is, and I know how frustrating it is that it feels like none of this is ever going to be rectified. Like these are enormous wrongs being committed against our country by people who have ostensibly power in this country. But who is still buying this stuff? The number of people who are still obsessed with the January 6th thing is almost zero. It is just the hardcore stick to your guns commies left on that right now. And yeah, there are probably a few more people who don't understand that the election was stolen, but that number is not that much higher. And the number of people who still believe the central narrative about coronavirus and the vaccines, well, that's dropping as fast as it could possibly drop. And all of these new restrictions and regulations, the COVID passports in England, the stuff we see with the quarantine camps in Australia, the restrictions in Germany and Austria, this stuff is waking people up. You just got to keep pushing because this narrative is collapsing completely and soon it will be collapsed in total. And at that point, once we reach that conspiracy theory singularity, well, then we're just going to have the truth going out there. And everybody's going to understand that that's the truth. And all those people out there trying to deny it, those people who still care about the January 6th commission. And by the way, there are still legitimate January 6th issues out there, including and especially the political prisoners that are rotting in D.C. jails for no reason. But the narrative itself is collapsing completely. The only people who still believe that, well, they're going to believe 
all of the nonsense, no matter how long any of this goes on for, and their brains are going to break. And we can sit back and be like, hey, I tried to warn you. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. Backing as moderator for tonight's broadcast. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofi. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!